They told me for years there was no money in podcasting. Well, they were all wrong. This is an ambiguous podcast solutions original podcast. A podcast years in the making. Centered around You're listening topics. to Talking with Tarashaw, with your host and founder of Ambiguous Podcast Solutions, Will Tarashaw. Join Will and his guests as they talk about anything and everything under the sun. Now, without further ado, let's do this. Yes, I know I have gray hair. And welcome everyone back to the Talking with Tarashuk podcast. My name is Will Tarashuk. You know how to spell it, but I'm going to spell it anyway. T is in Thomas, A-R-A-S-H-U-K, and the world may be ending, or it may not. Who knows? We're going to talk about Silicon Valley Bank with my friend, Steve Sosnick. Steve is an options trader, strategist, and market commentator. He is currently a chief strategist at Interactive Brokers, a leading online brokerage firm. Sosnick is also known for his expertise in options trading and as well as written extensively on the subject. He is a regular guest on a financial news network such as CNBC, Bloomberg, and Fox Business. He also provides insights and analysis in the markets. Like I said, we're going to talk about SVB. The fallout, what happens, what happens next, what it means, what it means for you, me, businesses, everything in between. Steve, <laughs> thank you so much for doing this. It's a little late on a Monday night, but hey, the news is constantly changing. I'm so glad I could get you last minute. How are you, sir? I'm good, thanks, Will. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, it, whatever we say now, I hope it's still valid <laughs> in, in, you know, in, in an hour, let alone in a day or two. Well, that's just typically how the news how the new shifts, especially something like this, you know, the Biden come out and he talked this morning, but he can talk again tomorrow morning, completely change everything. Um, you know, even as I was writing notes, I had to change up a few of my questions like, oh, OK, so now I know how the FDIC is going to do this or do I? <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. But um, first off, just kind of introduce yourself, right, what you do professionally and I guess why you uh, are kind of knowledgeable about this topic and why you give credibility to my podcast and being a guest. Well, that's a tall order, Will. <laughs> Please. Uh, yeah, it's tell me a whole life story, Steve. Right, you got thirty seconds. Okay. Um, well, I was born a humble background. No, um, <laughs> profession. The professional. The professional aspect of it is, I've spent far too long um, as a trader on Wall Street, and having and relative, relatively recently, not that recently, uh, moved over into a stra- into a strategy role. Um, what that means is, I started out at the big firms. I was at Solomon Brothers. I was at Lehman Brothers. I was at Morgan Stanley um, until I realized maybe the big firms weren't for me. And then I started at this little firm called Timber Hill, which was a you know decent sized options market making firm that was trying to get bigger. Um, that was 25 years ago. Um, along the way, we changed our name to Interactive Brokers, um, and we got a lot bigger. Um, and I helped manage um, this our option trading business. Um, you know, we were the largest option market maker and specialist firm in the world um, at one point. Uh, we we moved away from that business because, quite frankly, we started this little um, side business of of electronic brokerage, and that turned out to be a much bigger business than the option market making business. Uh, but along that along that way, I started to be like the one guy other than our chairman, Thomas Petterfee, who was allowed to talk um, to the press. You know, so I started writing a couple of guest columns. Well, started getting quoted here and there from one or two people. I was allowed to write a guest column in Barron's, largely because I became I'm friends with the regular columnist and he let me 
keep his seat warm when he would go on vacation. Um, and that led to, you know, becoming a talking head. So as we were de-emphasizing pro- proprietary trading, I was creating a new role for myself, which has, I got to admit, been a lot of fun. And I guess, you know, it's interesting because I get many more phone calls when things are a little weird, um, as they are now. And as we're going to discuss for the next hour, maybe they're a lot weird today. Um, you know, and I guess because, you know, I, I had this role sort of just making sure our options market making business didn't blow up. It was really just, you know, stamping out little fires here and there, or sometimes some big fires um, that I think has given me exposure to all a lot of different workings of the financial markets. And, you know, quite frankly, having been around long enough, I've actually seen a couple of cycles. And so, um, you know, so here, here I am and I hope to, um, you know, enlighten the, the listeners. Yeah, it's interesting you said the word cycle. I was talking to someone today, um, and he, he said, "Yeah, I was like, is this the end of the world?" He goes, "No, it's just the reset of a cycle." I'm like, "I don't know if I like, I don't know if I like the sound of that. It's the restart <laughs> of a cycle because I didn't know, you know, I guess the economy has its ebbs and flows, but it being cyclical, that's an interesting, interesting way to look at it. But I'm sure we'll get into it. So this is just start us off, right? Silicon Valley Bank, the second largest bank collapse in U.S. history. The first, of course, being uh, 2008 financial crisis. So. From what I understand of the bank, it's the 16th largest commercial bank. It serves technologies, life science, healthcare, venture capital industries. It became a leading provider of financial services to startups, venture capital firms, and high-growth technology companies, which I believe tech makes up, what, 20% of the economy, U.S. economy, give or take? Depending on how you slice it and how you define it, I'll say yes, but uh, yeah. So a pretty, pretty big bank. Right, the bank had about $209 billion in assets, give or take. I heard anywhere from 160 to 180 to 209. So however many, who knows? Um, so anything else, like what else do you know about this bank? Kind of fill in the gaps that uh, I just laid out there. I think it's a pretty solid, you know, this quick Google search. But anything yeah. else that you, you know about this bank, that what it does and like how it became the 16th largest bank in the country? Here's the crazy part. I I only barely knew of this bank's existence, being an East Coast person and not being, uh, you know, what I would call a tech insider. I I, I certainly, um, you know, you and I and, and, and your colleagues at NASDAQ have had plenty of conversations about tech stocks. But interestingly, a lot of them involve the, the NASDAQ in the, the the NDX, the NASDAQ 100 index, which is explicitly a non-financial index. Um, And so, um, so SVB or symbol was SIVB when it traded. SVB was only sort of out there on my radar. I, I spent most of my most of my professional career as a as the specialist in bank stock options. But uh, you know, by the time that this one really arose to be one of the largest banks in the country, I was winding that part of my career down. So it, it, this one kind of came out of the blue as well. What they did is they became they became the banker, as you mentioned, to the tech industry. And so what would happen would be they would cultivate relationships with uh, venture capital firms, other early stage investors, and became their bank of choice. And and so as the as the companies became flush with cash, these you know as the venture as the venture companies got funded, well, where are you going to leave it? Our bank seems to be Silicon Valley Bank. They seem to be good. We'll leave the money there. Um, one of the things we've learned here is, you know, that, that, um, sometimes if you're a good technology technologist, you're not necessarily a good financial person. And I think, uh, and in this case, there, it was a fairly, 
most banks are fairly opaque. Um, and so you had a lot of companies leaving a lot of money in this bank just sort of because everybody else did and because it seemed safe. Um, unfortunately, that we didn't really know what was under the surface. It, you know, the, a lot of people missed this, including the Fed, including, um, you know, including the Fed and, and, and other regulators. So um, I hope that explains it in a nutshell. But Basically, it, it was a, at some level a victim of its own success. Interesting. Interesting. So not everybody didn't see it coming because there, you know, the, some parts of the Internet, depending if you believe or not, some people in the company saw it coming. So like the CEO, for example, Greg Becker, you know, he sold 11% of his shares on February 27th. The counsel, Mike Zucker, 19% on February 5th. CFO, 23% on 227th. Mike Michelle Draper, CMO, sold 25% on February 1st. So they knew something was up, right? So yeah. like that, that in and of itself, right? Let's, let's just take that the, the people up top, if they- but, that, but, but that's opaque. See, that's the problem is they see it, but the rest of us don't. Right, so are they under any obligation to inform people? They kind of just let it happen. And while they walk out the back with this, they still got their money. You know, people, their executives, took, they still got their bonuses, right? So like, is there any liability on that end? Um, I'm not a lawyer. And so I'm not going to play one on this podcast. Fair I enough. would, if, if I was their friend, I would be telling them maybe you should find a good lawyer because there's certainly going to be people looking to, looking to claw back some of that money. You know, they used what they call 10 B one plans. At least the chairman did. And a lot of people hide behind that. There are, there are 10 B it's, it's meant to be sort of a regular stock sale program. Um, and you do see it used benignly. I know, I, you know, there are, there are executives who sort of sell 500 shares of stock every single day. Well, that's a pretty benign use of a 10 B one that that is truly mechanical. Um, in this case, they claimed it was a 10 B one, but then did some outsized sales. Um, and you know, there were some, there were some short sellers who did make out on this. There were, there were some people around who, who did sort of warn of this, but it was, you know, it was, this was the problem is it, it with banks. Somebody asked me last week, you know, what, what's the book value of, of SVB? And this was as the FDIC was closing it down. I said, well, negative, obviously. But, you know, if you looked, if you looked at financial statements, it looked like it was a fairly robust bank unless you really looked under the surface. And that, that not everyone is equipped to do that. Not everybody does it. You know, a lot of, I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm, I don't get into the balance sheets of a lot of these companies. I'm not a bank analyst, but even a lot of bank analysts missed it. The, the, what they did here was, in this case, though, it was less nefarious and just stupid. The one thing I will say, though, which 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 is a little interesting is, um, and, and I'm citing a report by The Guardian so that I, I want to be very careful that I'm not making this up. Um, the, the chairman of the bank also um, several years ago um, was one of the was one of the people lobbying for the for the changing of this um, systematically um, significant financial institutions. Basically, after in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, um, they they realized that there were certain systemic financial institutions that needed an extra degree of scrutiny and regulation. Um, J.P. Morgan, Bank America. Et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the, the cap was, you know, the number, the threshold was $50 billion. And as SVB approached $50 billion, um, their chairman was one of the people lobbying 
to get the rule changed up to 250 billion, um, at which which did happen. And so as a result, this one probably should have been considered a systemically um, important institution by the old rules, but but thanks partly to the chairman's lobbying efforts, um, the, the rules got changed in their favor. So the, the, you can't separate the politics and the behind the scenes stuff in any of these situations. You know there's always something going on, um, but I, I have to be very careful not to cast dispersions. I have to be very careful um, not, you know, and like what I said, I'm, I'm citing, I'm citing a published source uh, when I say, you know, when I say these two things. Um, but yeah, th- there's certain aspects of this that definitely um, don't necessarily pass the smell test on the surface. It's it's weird. I would tend to agree with you. No, I am also not a lawyer, an expert in any way, shape, or form. But just to sniff test, I would say that it's definitely more, in my humble opinion, it would be more like this stupidity than like. Um, malice. Now that that would be my guess, but the, well, this one really was the, this one really was stupidity. Actually, right. when you came down to it, what what happened here, and and this is, I guess, a good way to explain the 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 hows and the what's ups. Yes, when when you think of what a bank does, basically, is it takes in deposits, and I'm oversimplifying dramatically, but a really plain vanilla bank, you know, George Bailey, um, takes in deposits from depositors and lends them out um, to, you know, to other, to businesses um, and, and individuals for mortgages, for business loans, et cetera, et cetera. That, you know, that really is like the, it's a wonderful life idea. Um, now, the, the problem is deposits are by nature short-term. They're, they're called demand deposits, which means I can demand them back at any given moment. On the flip side though, there's not a lot of liquidity in someone's business in Mr. Gower's pharmacy, let's say. Um, you can't necessarily call that loan right away. So the banks have there's a there's a certain fragility in this. They're borrowing short term and they're lending long term and have to appear safe and solvent um, so that people don't so that too many people don't demand their money back. What happened in this case of Silicon Valley Bank is a lot of their customers got a lot of money. Think of all the money that sloshed around um, in the post-COVID world. And I'm not just talking about stimulus checks going to people. I'm talking about you know investments in, in SPACs and, and, and all sorts of IPOs that maybe shouldn't have happened. And so is, there was a lot. It's fair to mention that the bank itself, most of their clients were businesses, right? So yes. businesses got more PPP loans or whatever loans from the government during COVID. So they had an influx of cash. But it's beyond. It's way beyond that. Well, it's 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 these are these are corporate transactions. You know, like you know, or or companies doing their banking. Roku had four hundred and sixty million dollars in the bank. Circle the 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 stable coin had three point three billion dollars at the bank. So you know, we can argue whether that money sloshing around in Circle should be there or not. I'm gonna. I will say that. Crypto as a whole is a um, easy money phenomenon, mm-hmm. shall we say? Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so th- there was there was that kind of money in going around looking for a home. Well, the bank you know pays interest on those deposits. So, what did the bank do when it got all this money? It, it didn't necessarily lend it out to you know in the case of mortgages and, and co- other corporate loans because these companies didn't need the deep, didn't need business loans so much necessarily. So the bank put it in what appeared to be very safe securities. They bought treasury bonds for the most part, or, you know, or government agency mortgages. 
there's not a lot of credit risk on those, theoretically zero. But there is duration risk. So remember about that part about borrowing short and lending long. Well, the problem is, even in the case of something like government bonds, which are very liquid, relatively speaking, they are subject to price fluctuation. And so you had short duration borrowing and long duration lending. Now, remember, so I'm sorry, you know, I'm sorry, um, per, you know, assets. And so the assets on their books, as rates rose, if you buy a bond and prevailing interest rates rise, bond prices fall. And so they they had to keep ratcheting up the price of their deposits or at least stick and stay in line with the market. But meanwhile, the, the value of their assets was falling. And so, and this is what happens, you've heard the term inverted yield curve, mm-hmm. meaning that rates in the short term are higher than rates in the long term. Well, if you're borrowing at a higher rate than you are lending, that's not a recipe for success for banks. And these guys got caught up in liquidity. It wasn't credit. The the global financial, most of the global financial crisis was a result of silly credits, banks lending to pe- banks lending to people who shouldn't have had mortgages, but, you know, or, or all sorts of crazy schemes. In this case, the the main the the, the their loans were going to the government, which is not a particularly productive thing necessarily, but they got them marked against them. And so when people wanted their money back, they had to sell down some of these long-term, these long-term bonds. And they, they, and they sold, well, not just a loss, $1.8 billion loss. And that of course got people, got, got people's eyebrows raised. What's right. going on there? How bad are their books? Let's, let's take our money out. And that's when it became sort of the old fashioned bank run. Um, and that's what the Fed and the Treasury had to step in and take care of. Um, they were, I think they were hoping to do it over the weekend. They liked to, to deal with problem banks over the weekend, yeah. but circumstances overtook them and they had to deal with, they had to close it down on Friday. Well, that makes sense though, right? I mean, you, you think about it, it makes sense that this would happen really on a Friday afternoon so they can, the markets close over the weekend, they can kind of prepare and make a plan because otherwise it would just crash the next day, like almost like that. Where I suppose Monday they can plan a plan and some things out. So that totally makes sense to me. But I'm going to backtrack a little bit because so essentially I need to kind of simplify a little more. Bonds. This is a term I've heard a lot over the years. Like I kind of know what they are, government bonds, treasury bonds. Can you explain this basic 101, what bonds are and how they work? Bonds are a securitized way of borrowing money. Mm-hmm. So for example, if if you want to go borrow if you want to go borrow money to buy a house, you would go to the bank and get a mortgage. Yep. That's really a contract between you and the bank. But if you're um IBM or the federal government or Microsoft or someone of that nature, you you may find it more prudent to go out to the markets and ask the market for money. So it's so it's a tradable standardized instrument that you know that that has a fixed maturity i promise i would like to borrow 100 million dollars and i will pay you back in 5 years and i will pay you 5% interest on a set, you know, with coupons semi-annually, give you semi-annual payments. And as a result, the market can value that. You can then value um, is, you know, is 5% a good yield based on the credit worthiness of the borrower and based on the prevailing interest rates. If interest rates are 7%, 5% coupon is pretty lousy. Right. And so that bond will have a value less than par. They're usually in thousand dollar increments, but everybody always quotes them as percentage of par. So in that in that circumstance, the five the five percent 
bond, let's say it's a very good credit, uh, but if it's 7% prevailing interest rates, that bond is going to trade, I don't know, I don't know, I'm just making up a number, 96 cents on the dollar, 92 cents on the dollar. If, if interest rates are 2 or 3%, well, that bond, you'll want, people will want that 5% coupon, um, and the bond will trade above par, you know, by some sort of increment so called it's, 102, it's, 105. It's like a loan that changes depending on the market. Well, the, the terms of the loan don't change, but the right. but the, the market the price would, the interest would change. No, the no, the terms of the loan stay fixed. The the amount that the there there are floating rates, and I'm trying to avoid talking about floating rate debt and all this other stuff. But let's take a plain vanilla the government bond. The government the government has huge borrowing needs, and the vast majority of their debt is what's called fixed coupon debt. And so what happens is they will they do different bond if issuances. So we're going to borrow a hundred million dollars. So that 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 amount is fixed. We're going to pay. We're going to set a maturity that's fixed. Let's call it five years, and we're going to set a coupon. And these government bond auctions go off all the time. Um, they usually get priced somewhere around par, but not exactly. But because the, without getting too mathy, there's the present value of cash flows. And what we want to do is figure out, we, there are equations, and, and I'm going to ask the listeners to look them up because I really don't feel like getting into them on this, and you don't want me to get into yeah, them no, on this. Keep it, keep it simple, please. Exactly. And so the bottom line is, if I'm going to get, if I'm going to give you $1,000 now or give the government $1,000 now mm -hmm. and get back $1,000 five years from now and along the way get 5% a year on the on that on that on that original five thousand you know thousand um, dollars, there's a there there's a value to that, and that value changes based on interest rates. Right. Um, and we're going to use the example of the government because I don't have to worry about credit. If 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 it's if there's a perception that the loan's not going to get paid back, well then that that decreases all things being equal. That decreases the price of the bond. But so in a very simple sense, it's a publicly traded piece of debt. But the bond markets are very large, very efficient, um, and you have a lot of people who have the kind of calculators that can price out what the present value of that is. If I, you know, based on prevailing interest rates now, based on my alternatives, other things that I could do with the money, what is that worth at present? When when interest rates were zero, well, people really wanted pretty much anything with a coupon because right. you couldn't you couldn't get them. Now, <clears throat> when rates are higher and depending on when this goes live and when somebody's listening to it, they could be any place because they've been all over the place, but I will guarantee you they're not going to be zero. Um, and so the, 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 the higher, the prevailing interest rate, um, the, the, the lower the value of that coupon and, and vice versa. And so that's really, that's really what changes it. So the, in the world of government bonds, there's everybody marking these things to market constantly. It moves regarding interest rates and market forces. Um, but in the case of SIVB, um, you know they they really they put it all they put it all on these longer term bonds when rates were very low, yeah. when things were not having good coupons, and as a result, when rates went higher, the the value of those bonds fell, um, in some cases fairly sharply, yeah, even though eventually they'll get paid. It's also a problem of they didn't have liquidity, right? That's why they had to sell their bonds. There was not exactly and li liquidity is this little cash, right? Like I have I have ten thousand dollars in my bank account and another fifty thousand dollars in investment. My net value is what I say, fifty and ten, sixty thousand. My liquidity is ten thousand. Yep. 
right? But the problem with yep. assets is assets change in value consistently. Like if we buy a house for $4,000 and you retire 60 years later, it's worth a million dollars, right? Assets change in value. So, but, but look, but a house is illiquid. So if I, so if I told you, I need, I need you, you know, you've got the house and I need you to sell that house. Mm -hmm. You're not going to necessarily sell it. You know, it may say, if you go to Zillow, it'll say your house is worth $400,000. If you go to sell it, there's nothing that says you're going to get $400,000 plus right. there's going to be an agent's fee and everything else. So that really does play into liquidity. Houses are illiquid. So I think this is more of a question of just a general like uh, this, the general economy, economics, like when we say net value, like if the, the company is worth, the company was worth billions upon billions of dollars, that's including all of the assets. Why do we categorize like that instead of, no, no, they're actually worth what liquidity is. Like they're actually worth how much cash they have because the assets are fixed, right? The liquidity can be, can come and go, but it's pretty much basic math. The assets can just fluctuate all over the place. So why can well, we say with, with the net worth of things? It's why why do we put more weight on the assets than the actual liquidity? Well, you shouldn't be. Um, we do. The, the we we do, but we but but it, it it's it's sort of a misnomer. Mm -hmm. Remember here, there's something very important. The basic accounting identity is assets minus liabilities equals equity. And really, you sh everybody should be focusing on what the what the net equity is of any enterprise, whether it's a company, whether it's a, whether it's your personal, personal life. I mean, if I, if, you know, if you have a million dollar house and have a $1.1 million mortgage, your net equity is, your equity is negative $100,000. If you have a $400,000 house and a $200,000 mortgage, your equity is $200,000. So, so that is, that is how you think of it. And that is how analysts do think of companies, but we always get, we always get tripped up by that because you're right. We do tend to think about the assets. Um, and then of course, within the assets and liabilities, there are liquid, there are, there are liquid assets and illiquid assets, and there are current liabilities and long-term liabilities. And so, um, you know, there, there are, there are various accounting identities that people use the current ratio. So, you know, so what, what can happen is, you know, and you've heard me talk about this. One of the things I always like to focus on is cash flow. You know, when, when we talk about does a company making money or not, they always talk about the earnings per share. And then I always want to see what the cash flow is doing because you know what, you can use all kinds of accounting tricks to massage your earnings per share. You know, that you can, say that this was a one-time item or, or this, you know, this is, you know, this is a non-recognizable thing, or, you know, we're going to, we're going to exclude this, that, and the other, but you can't fake cash flow. Um, and so cash flow is what keeps it current. So, so all these things sort of work in tandem. There is no one way to measure it, but you're right. If you're just focusing on assets, um, you, you're really not getting at anything close to a complete picture. Some, you know, you can look at someone and say, Oh, he's got a $5 million house and, 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 you know, and two, and two, you know, a Ferrari and a Lamborghini. Well, but if he's indebted up to his eyeballs, he's not worth a, He's not worth a thing. Yeah. The assets are only valuable if the liquidity is there to back it up. Well, the asset, but you have to have the liquidity. You have to have more assets than you have liabilities mm -hmm. and you have to have, the liquidity, the cash flow, to to service your debts. So you know, in, in that example of the guy who's hyper levered, um, if he's got a job that pays him, you know, a million dollars a year, presumably as long as he keeps his job, he can stay current on all his debts. He could pay he could pay his mortgage, he could pay his car payments, and soldier on, and 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 so be it, and just hope he doesn't lose his job. 
you know, if that if that come all comes to a halt, well, then he doesn't have the liquidity to service his debts. He mm-hmm. he he owes money on that house. He owes money on those cars, and people are going to be looking for it. Well, then what happens is he's you know at some point they're going to either foreclose, they're going to repo the car, they'll foreclose on the house. But the but the lenders don't want to do that because they know that that if they take over a five million dollar house. They may not be able to sell it for $5 million if that's the value of the mortgage. If they take over the cars, cars depreciate. They may not be able to sell it for that. So it, it, it's it's very much intertwined. So liquidity is really your earnings or your cash flow. You know, in the case of a person, it's your it's your income. In the case of a company, it's really the, the some combination of income and, and free cash flow. Can the cash flow service the debts? And are the debts less than the assets? If if that equation flips over, you're you're in real trouble. And in the case of SVB, the liabilities were greater than the assets, and they did not have the cash. And certainly, when everybody demanded their money, um, and their only assets were relatively illiquid, they had to take a haircut. And that's and that's where the bank run comes in. Right. Well, it sounds like a big hot mess. And, you know, fingers crossed that it gets worked out. Fingers, well, fingers crossed isn't a domino effect. And is a domino effect? Well, we don't know. As of recording this on Monday, March 13th, we, we don't know. You know, a few other banks were in New York when San Francisco has failed. Now, is that related? You know, I have no idea. But let's kind of stick, let's stick to one bank at a time. So, insuring the money, right? Because, you know, me, I use TD Bank. I also use Wells Fargo. Those are FDIC insured, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Right, but it's two hundred fifty thousand dollars per account. Right now, mm-hmm. that doesn't matter if it's a business account or a personal account. Now, personal that makes sense. Right? I think two hundred fifty thousand dollars is a fine number to insure money for a personal account. But businesses, why isn't there? A, why isn't that a higher threshold? Like, why isn't two hundred fifty million for businesses? Because businesses typically have more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars in the bank account. The logic, and we can argue whether this is true or not, is is the whole point of FDIC was was there to protect individuals because you know the, the it was created in you know in the aftermath of the depression when you you know when literally you'd see the the, the movies of people lining up outside the bank waiting for the money, um, and so it was the the thought was that small invest smaller investor I'm going to call them investors but just you know individuals aren't going to do the credit worthiness. You don't know if TD is is better than Wells Fargo or better than, you know, XYZ Bank, which is down the street. And, and the whole point is to make you sort of indifferent to that. You're, you, the average individual is not in any position to do bank analysis, parenthetically, as we learned, so are either a lot of bank analysts, unparentheses. Um, but so the thought would be, so it was $100,000 actually before the global financial crisis that got raised to two fifty. dollars um, Effect the the idea the thought would be that if you're over two fifty, um, you're you know you should be sophisticated enough to um, to understand whether a bank is risky or, or not risky. I'm going to argue that you know we had I got to believe the corporate treasurers at a lot of these companies um, had the should have had at least the smarts to be able to figure it out whether SVB was, was dodgy or not, but they, they, they really didn't have all the data available to them. And they also rely on regulators and the regulators didn't, they either had the data and didn't use it or didn't have the right data. Um, and so, you know, I don't, I think the idea of just distinguishing between individuals and businesses is not necessarily fair. Um, you know, you could think of any number of small businesses that would have, you know, 
a relative, you know, call it $250,000 or less. Um, I would say the vast majority uh, of small businesses in this co- country have that or less. But, you know, let's say, for example, um, you're going to buy a new, you're going to build a new um, factory or something like that. And you might borrow a million dollars from the bank, but before you break ground, you've got a million dollars in the bank. Um, and so I, I think that you're, you're not necessarily doing the credit worthiness. You, you've just, you've bar, you know, you've, you've always dealt with, with this bank. And so you, there's no reason, you have no reason to believe they're going to go out of business and they just lent you a million dollars. Um, you, you know, you're going to leave it there until you actually, you know, as you, as you spend down the money on what should be a produ- productive investment for your business. So it's a tough, it's a tough thing to distinguish. And, and I think it's, but what they did, what they did here was to avoid the, uh, the contagion, was to say, all right, we're just going to guarantee everybody's deposits. So effectively, we just threw the $250,000 cap out the window. I think in the short term, it stemmed the run on banks. You don't, you're not having people saying, give me my money. But what it, uh, what it still did was people don't, it made people very wary of investing in their stocks and bonds because the, the stockholders and the stockholders got wiped out. And the bondholders, we don't know what they're going to recover. So people got very wary about that. But in the short term, I think it did stem, stem the run. You didn't really hear of any runs coming today uh, of people, you know, trying to get money out. The, there was maybe there was one that was maybe there, but they were able to secure some funding. So we'll see what happens. But I think that part was safe. But then the other part is, well, what does it mean to be in a world where we had this two hundred and fifty thousand dollar? insurance limit and now basically eh, let's forget about it so now it's just like they're not going to put it back right so now it's kind of sounds like well this is going to do this forever so like the fdic right they have the money but how how do they insure it right where does the fdic get the money from now is their money they have is that locked up in assets do they gotta sell some stuff or is it all liquid it's coming from the government they're gonna print it is is peter pan gonna come and woo here it is like where is the money it's an insurance company. The banks pay premiums, you know, for the same, just, just like you do on your, on your house or your right. car. Um, I, I don't exactly know where they keep it. I think they actually just keep it at the treasury okay. where, you know, and the treasurer, you know, and in theory, you know, it's just sort of, it's all book entry. It's not like there's this huge pile of money somewhere in the treasury. So it's but, but zeros on a computer then. Exactly. But the, tre- but the treasury, you know, it was really the, you know, the one, the U S government can, you know, more or less print money if it wants to, so to speak. And so the, and so the, in theory, the banks are paying insurance, um, you know, and there's a formula for, you know, how much, how much you have to insure, obviously, um, you know, a large bank has to pay more FDIC insurance than a small bank, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is now we, 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 the insurance premiums, were set based on a maximum payout of $250,000 per person. Right. And now they're going to skyrocket because there's no. And so now, presumably, no they're going to have to raise those. F- exactly. And they're going to have to. They can price met whatever they want based on the risk of their business. Well, we don't know. See, this is the problem because, uh-huh. because there's so many moving parts. You know, if they want to do it right, it may have to be right. set at a number that's so prohibitive that the banks are going to basically be able to pay even less to interest, less in interest than they already do in some cases. Um, and so, I, this is this is all this is all being done on the fly. And when you do this on the fly, I understand why they did it because it, they they could not have a, a they they really just did not want to see a series of sequential bank runs right because that, that would be let lead to a domino and like god forbid right that the whole everyone i, I always made this joke with people right if everyone went to the bank and withdrew their money they call me with this end 
That's absolutely now it's kind of like, well, that's not really a joke anymore. That's actually kind of possible because there's not there's not enough money, there's not enough liquidity for everyone's assets. So when you, when you break it down like that, is money actually real? Like honestly, yeah. honestly though, like if if like if we all went to the bank and everyone did a bank run, money would just cease to exist. It just wouldn't exist. So if you can just if the government can just print the money and it's just one and zeros in a computer. Just give people money then. Modern, money, once we stopped using gold and silver coins, you know, doubloons and stuff like right, that. I, I could talk about this with Nixon in the 70s forever. Come on, please continue. <laughs> money, money became, money and credit became inextricably linked. Money is right. credit. Right. Banks, in a way, create money because what they do is they only have to keep a certain fraction on, on reserve. That may have to change. That may have to go up. We'll see about that. Right. But what, but what, you know, I forget what the exact rate is, and I'll just use 10% as, a, as an example. But so you, you and I give the bank $100,000. They can actually then lend out a million dollars if someone will let them. If someone will, and, so, and so the banks actually create the money under the auspices of the Federal Reserve um, and the Treasury and the control of the currency and all the other various, you know, you know, three and four letter agencies that they report to. Um, but the banks are the ones that create money. It's all a system of credit. And so it, so everybody does have to, there, there is a certain element of trust out there um, that, that involves, that involves the monetary system. You know, and so, yeah, because it's inside, it's, it's interesting to say it's a level, a, a credit, you use the word credit. I would use the word debt, right? This con this country is run on debt and who owes money to who? Well, one person's debt is one person, you know, one, one yeah. person's debit is one person's credit. Uh -huh. I mean, that's, again, we're going to go back to the basic accounting thing, you know, um, you know, my asset is, but basically, you know, in the, in the case of banking, someone's asset is someone's liability. That's why you have to net out right. the assets and the liabilities. Um, but the problem is, again, not all the, not there, you have a miss where, where you fall into problems with banks is you have this mismatch of assets and liabilities, the the the, the, the liabilities, um, the liabilities are are, you know, in theory, anyone can go into the bank and demand all their money on any given day. Mm -hmm. it, it only works because everybody doesn't do that because yeah. everybody has some faith in the in the banking system. Um, but yeah, you're right. If every and that was that was really the root of the Great Depression was was the banks the banks got way out over their skis. There wasn't a lot of regulation. And people would run to the bank, you know, you get bank runs and one would, you know, and it would be like dominoes falling. And when that happens, because the banks created the money to, to a large extent, right? You know, you, this our hundred thousand becomes a million circulating out there. Well, the flip side is when the bank, when there's a bank run, the money disappears. And so you have right. this monetary shrinkage. And so I think that's, you know, that's going to be another interesting little feature because you didn't lose the deposits, the deposit nature of the bank didn't, didn't deflate away but basically all the all the equity holders are, are looking at potentially zero and all the bondholders are looking at a big haircut well that's a lot of money that just vanished that those are someone's assets that no longer that are at best impaired at worst vaporized so, in where, the case where, of where to go right it's got to go somewhere like if it just if the 100 billion dollars just disappears it's got to go some someone has to have it it's got to be it's just it's just gone it's just in the ether it's gone it's gone but I mean, where to go? you know 
it vanished. I know that that's the crazy part of it because, because it didn't really exist in the first place that's because it was, there it is. <laughs> there it is, Steve. The money didn't exist in the first place. It, it, it existed. It existed because, it, it existed because we agree it exists, right? Exact boom. That's exactly what I was going to say. It exists because we agree it exists. It agree, it exists because we we believe in the system that allows it to exist. So the market um, but, runs on confidence. Like it that that's it. Absolutely. The market absolutely. On, you know what, Steve? I would prefer a market that runs on money <laughs> instead of just confidence. But money is con but money but the the no, modern money money. system money, money is, is confident. Money. money is a physical thing here. I got my wallet here. No, no, it's not. It's no, money. No, no, it's no, not. No, it's not because it's, it's a piece of paper. It's not. Like, it's, the right. it's a piece of paper. It's the promise. It's, it's the, the promise value. that. Yes, you know what? You're right. Damn it. It's not the only. You know, money is. You know, it. it you, you know, we money realistically is basically if you want to go back to the root of it, it's a system of barter. I've got, you know, I, I, I'm growing, I'm growing tomatoes yep. in my backyard, and I'll trade them with you for, 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 for. Take this hole for me, yeah, 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 whatever. Build, build this window for, for me, yeah. For some, you know, for some goods or some services. Mm -hmm. In reality, that's a very inefficient way to run things. So money existed. The original forms of money were gold and gold silver. Coins, why yeah, gold? Iron. Why gold and silver? What's the inherent value? What you know? Yes, gold. No, yes, gold. Well, gold uh, has again, utility. It's we all agreed this gold piece equals this. Exactly. Gold gold has gold has inherent value. It's a good conductor of electricity. Not yep. that it mattered to, to people then. It's shiny. It's not it's not all that plentiful. It's it's malleable. And so it became the the instrument of currency. Obviously, there wasn't enough gold around to do all your transactions. And that's a silver was a was more plentiful and, and had many of those qualities. And so that became a, a means of exchange. We, you know, it could have been anything, but even there, that's that's because everybody agreed to accept mm -hmm. gold and silver coins in exchange for all these things. It then morphed into, you know, it then morphed into, you know, to a credit-based banking system, credit and debit-based banking system. But it's it's all it short of short of like trading actual goods and services, you know, at, at an individual level. You, you need some, everybody's got to agree that this form of, that this medium of exchange mm -hmm. has value. You know, Steve, I'm glad, I'm glad you don't want to kind of blow my mind on that one, right? Because I, I, I was, I'm a big, big fan of gold. You know, I wish we would go back on the gold standard because money was actually more valuable back then. Um, but to your point, you know, it only, it's, it's the same thing. It runs on the confidence. It only, gold doesn't only work that much because we have a system in place to make sure we all agree it was worth that much. Exactly. Damn, no. Right. I mean, we, we, we look, we can look, we can there, there, you know, you can check the price of a, of, of an ounce of gold, but again, that, that price of the ounce of gold is in exchange for dollars or, or yen or whatever else. So even there, you know, and that, so even there people, because people aren't going, because you're not going to, you know, the bodega and buying a soda with a gold coin, you know, if you hold gold, you still will to, for practicality's sake, you're going to convert it back to some other currency that's generally accepted um, as a means of exchange so and your hope is your hope is that the gold that the gold can that you own can be exchanged for more dollars or yen or whatever sometime down the road right so i mean so theoretically right why is inflation even a thing then if we like if, if the money is like if infl the dollar is worth like 10 percent less because 10 percent inflation can we always be like nope it's not it's back where it was 100 years ago like we could just do that right I don't know how you would do that, but you could theoretically could just do that. Well, here's the here's like the if, here's if, the re if, if this if this philosophical conversation of money is just what we all agree it is, how do we have inflation then? 
because we we because as more of it comes is printed, as more of it comes out, as as we live in a debt ba- as we live in a debt based world, mm-hmm. um, where the banks are incentivized to continue to pump out money. Well, the more money that exists, the less each dollar is worth, or whatever whatever we want to call it. Um, gold had inflation too. There was there was massive inflation in. Yep. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back way before that. There was massive inflation in the early 1500s it, why and think about why if it was a gold based economy why would there have been massive inflation 1500s yep oh god that was before america what was going on in the 1500s in europe the conquistadors found loads of gold in america and brought it back to europe and so, so there was that, a relatively fixed it was an influx right too much yeah so there was a relative so there was a relatively fixed amount of gold because it was difficult to mine it wasn't all that plentiful and 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 all of a sudden they you know the the, Sp- the Spaniards found all this gold in the new world and brought it back to Spain and as a result it actually you know devalued gold to a certain extent meaning it took more gold to buy a certain amount of goods and services that's inflation the reason you know the reason gold has been typically considered an inflation hedge is it's relatively fixed whereas if you know again if we're talking about ones and zeros and credit and and, and fractional reserve banking well that can continually go up the problem is if you live in a debt if you live in a debt driven world like we do deflation inflation is bad but deflation is worse because you want to be able to, you know, if you borrow the money to buy a house, right? You, you, let's go back to your let's go back to your four hundred thousand dollar house. So if you have your house and you and you buy and you take out a mortgage that's worth call it, you know that that's call it three hundred thousand dollars. Just keep the numbers easy. Um, if there's a little bit of inflation, in you remember what I said about the present value of money. So in theory, that three hundred thousand dollars in in today's money is really, you know, you're going to be, it's worth $250,000, you know, by the time you're done with the mortgage in 15 or 30 years. Meanwhile, in the meantime, hopefully inflation has picked up the value of your house so that you'll be able to sell your house when the time comes mm-hmm. for $450,000 or $500,000, that kind of thing. So if you're in a debt, if you're in a debt driven world, you need a little inflation because you, you want um, it incentivizes borrowing of money. And un- the problem is it gets out of hand. It, it impacts people's living standards. Those who are lending the money don't really want to just keep lending it, and it too much if there's too much inflation. And so sort of we've arbitrarily decided that 2% is the number. Um, deflation is a problem because you don't want to be paying back in real terms more money than you borrowed. That's a real problem. You at least want to just be paying back. You want to be paying back in real terms, no more than what you borrowed, um, and you certainly don't want the value of the assets that are that are be- that are behind that debt. You don't want them to depreciate. So you, that that's why as inflation is bad, but deflation is worse. No, and that so sense. here, makes sense. yeah. So here we are. <laughs> here we are. All right. So now we're going to move. Now we're going to look forward. Moving forward. So the government is saying they're going to retain all the funds. So there's, I guess, there's three ways they can do this, right? They can raise taxes and pay for it that way. They can print money, which is going to cause inflation, or they can have the banks pay for it, right? Somehow that make, somehow make the banks, right? It's correct if I'm wrong here. The banks can have, they can have the banks kind of front the bill, and then the banks are just going to pass that on in fees and other things to the consumer because they're not going to pay it themselves. Why would they do that? They want a business. So is there any way 
that we can get ourselves out of this without like the middle class, regular people, main straight just being absolutely hosed. I just I don't see a way that the government can just do this. Also, this seems very uncapitalistic, right? If the capitalism is like let them fail, it's capitalism, right? Uh, I'm not going to argue with that. We we've we've privatized pro- in a system like this. We privatize profits and socialize losses. Oh, I'm so glad you said that because I had that written down in all caps. Now, now <laughs> it's fine to do. I'm not going to say it's fine to do that. I don't think it's fine to do that. But I don't ever want to hear a politician, anyone saying this is a capitalist society because it's not. That is, I'm going to say it's bullshit. I'm going to say it's straight up bullshit. Because what happens now? Because you, you, can't, you can't let the banks fail because that's going to cause a domino effect. It could. You don't, want, you don't want that. But this plan B doesn't seem much better because, as you kind of talked about earlier, the rich people are going to walk, walk with the back with all the money, whether that's they can or can't, you know, lawyers, we're not lawyers. But Main Street's going to get hosed one way or the other. I'm not sure Main Street gets hosed. In some ways, Main Street doesn't get hosed because if you're, because let's go back to that example of a decent sized business person okay. who, who, you know, who who wants to be able to know that whatever money they're you they're putting in the bank will still be there when it comes time to pay their bills and pay their and pay their employees and service and service their debts and buy you know and buy goods and services that it, they need to turn into something else. But it will be worth as much. Well, this is well. Here's the thing: what we're talking about with the FDIC here is, in th- the again, they did this on the fly, so we don't really know how this is going to play out. My gut is basically the Treasury sort of prints the money to cover these debts now, and that is somewhat inflationary. That's why, uh, and and that's that's the, that has its own issues, and that sort of was considered. Um, by the markets today to be a liquidity injection at some level. Mm-hmm. Over time, if this is going to be the new insurance regime, they're gonna the banks are going to have to pony up more money in insurance payments, right? I mean, if 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 you're a poor, you know, if you're a if you're a good driver with no accidents, you pay less in insurance. Right. If if you're a crappy driver, you have to pay more. And if you go, you know, and if you trade in, and if you trade in a Subaru and and you know for for a Mercedes, your insurance premium is going to go up because what you're insuring is a much bigger is a much bigger number. But aren't the banks and so pass that on to the consumer and the businesses that they bank with? Yes, it's going to be more friction. So here's the trade off. Now that's not necessarily a bad trade. Okay. Okay. The the trade is, do I am, am I willing to receive a little less in interest payments from the bank in exchange for a safer and sounder banking system. I think that's a reasonable question to ask. And, and the agree. details are and the details are in are in the mechanics. I think that 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 that's not that in and of itself is not at all problematic. It's not at all socialist, et cetera. The problem is if if we just sort of say, okay, we're gonna keep we're just gonna we're just gonna keep willy nilly, um, you know. Pay. We're gonna we're gonna subsidize uh, depositors, whether or not whether or not we're properly insured for it, and then just print the money to pay them off and make this a permanent thing. That's problematic. So the 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 first thing I laid out that's a choice, right? And 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 that and we all have choices like that. Do you you know? Do you want to do do you want do you want to take collision on your car? Some people do. Some people don't. You know, if you got a piece of you know, if you got a car that's kind of a piece of crap, you don't want to pay collision insurance. If you got a, if you got a, you know, and I, I've been in that situation where I've just taken the collision off because it's I was driving around an old car. If it, you know, if it, and so, but that that's that's a so if we can do that, 
as a society, as an economy, and make those choices in a rational way, with then I don't have a real problem with that because that's insur- insurance is is a risk transfer mechanism, and that's okay. That's okay. Insurance markets work because because risks get transferred um, and through some you know, and the insurance company is the transferer of the risk. Um, the problem is if we just sort of say you know forget the insurance forget any concept of of insurance and premiums and we're just going to keep the premiums the same um or we're just going to basically say you know what we don't really care what banks do and you know let them let them do all these crazy things and the depositors will be made whole no matter what uh that's that goes back to the you know privatizing profits socializing losses because it incentivizes um, bankers to to take risks with depositor money that that may not be at all appropriate. Right. You know the other problem we get into is people clamor for deregulation when times are good because it's seen it's seen as this impediment to the profits that can be out there that we can make. But then then people clamor for more regulation when something like this happens. When when, when sort of the inevitable and it's sort of inevitable that as you deregulate, you will you will find the hole. Someone will find the holes in the regulation. The problem the problem is many in many cases it's the same people who clamored for the deregulation who then clamor for either support or re-regulation, and that infuriates me. Well, in, in a perfect world, I think that would make sense, right? You know, the rules it it shifts like a tide, right? It's cyclical. We mentioned both cycles earlier. Mm-hmm. When things are good, yeah, peel off some of the red tape. Everyone's playing by the rules. No one's cheating. Once someone cheats, you put the rules back in there. And then once everyone kind of settles down, you start to alleviate the rules, and then it just it goes back and forth. To me, that makes sense. But the same people who are alleviating the rules are the ones who are calling them back. For, yeah, that's I understand why it's infuriating. That's it's like they're they're playing. It's like are they playing both sides? Is that kind of what it's like? Well, yeah, I mean, I gave you the example earlier, you know, again, about pu- the published report about the guy, you know, lobbying to, to not be, to not have SVB be a, a significant, fin- a, a systemically important financial institution. Yeah, they, they so, cited the low risk profile of their activity and business models, to which, where? <laughs> you, well, well like that, that one wrong. <laughs> no kidding. And so that's exactly it. So, so th- times were good. They didn't want the red tape. They didn't want the hassle of regulation. They were growing fat. They were growing and didn't want didn't want to have to deal with the extra hassle that this was going to cause. Guess what? They were, it turns out they were a systemically important institution because we had to go bail them out to avoid a financial crisis. Again, we'll so, banks again, you know, we just built and the so, banks in 2008, which 15 years ago is not a long time. Remember, it's not necessarily bailing the banks out. See, this is another interesting little misnomer. The, the banks, in this case, we're bailing out depositors. We're not bailing out. We're not bailing out the owners of the bank, and we're not even bailing out capital market lenders to the banks. Even even in the era of of you know the the quote unquote bailouts, what were we supposed to do? Were we just supposed to let Citibank vanish? Um, we we learned. We, you know, we did that. They. They did it with Lehman Brothers, and that didn't work out well. So they had to come up with some mechanism um, that would allow the banks to keep functioning. Because remember, it all goes on confidence, and we were confidence was an, an all you know impossible low. It seemed so. They came up with these mechanisms. One can argue again that the government didn't charge enough for their services to to backstop these banks. But I, I think I think it's a little quick to say it's a bailout, and I, I would certainly argue that. SV in the case of SVB, the depositors were bailed out, but the banks themselves, you know, the bank itself wasn't bailed out. The bank doesn't exist anymore. 
their, their assets in the UK, which were sold, were sold for a pound. So there was no bailout there for the bank itself. Um, and so, so we have to be very careful with the terminology. Fair enough. Thank you. Thank you for making that distinction. So yeah, I think, okay, in that case, depositors. So the people, the people who are using the bank got bailed out. That makes sense. Um, yeah. So this idea of a bank can just do what it did, do what it does, and no matter what, it's going to be bailed out. Now, that doesn't sound sustainable. It sets the precedent that banks can just do whatever they want. They can be reckless. You know, they can pump their stock when it comes crashing down. Oh, here comes big daddy government to save the day. Um, with no accountability being taken. Now, in this particular circumstance, we don't know if there should or shouldn't be accountability. Like you said, we're not lawyers. Um, but doesn't this set a bad precedent that the banks, if other banks, because now other banks are definitely looking at their stuff going, uh-oh, whether it is mm-hmm. or it isn't, they're looking, right? They're going to be looking, as they should be looking. But we shouldn't have this precedent of no matter what, you're going to be bailed out. Just do what you do. We don't care what it is. We're going to bail you out. So we do need some restrictions. We do need some regulation. I hate regulation. But but, like, but, you, but you need it here. You do need it here. Like regulation, well, you, you, regulation is where you need it, right? Some, you, can, well, you can point to plenty of examples across the market where regulation is ridiculous, whether it's from unions or from this or that or the other. It's too much red tape. But in this circumstance, this is our banks. This is the, this is the money. This is literally the confidence which the market runs on. Yeah, regulate the shit out of, <laughs> regulate the shit out of it, of course. And and this is this has become this becomes the issue because remember one of the other, you know, one of the one of the phrases that you hear a lot is other people's money, and mm-hmm. so if, if you have no regulation, you're incentivized to do crazy you know, to to take risks with other people's money. You know, it, it becomes heads I win, tails you lose. Yep. You know, if if if. Well, well, I'm thinking from the banker point of view. If I if I if I have no bank regulation, well, and I'm taking in these deposits, I'm incentivized to just take whatever you know. I'll take whatever crazy risk I can with that money, because if it win, if it works, I'll get paid. I'll get paid back enormously. If I'm the you know if I'm the main stockholder in the bank, my stock will go up. I'll be able to pay myself a lot of money and et cetera, et cetera. And if it loses, well, all right, well, you know, I lose, but other people lose worse than me. Um, and, and that's why you need regulation because, because you do, you the banks are fiduciaries. We, 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 we expect the banks to operate in some, in some way, shape or form in our best interests. The ironic thing here about SVB is on the surface, they actually weren't, they weren't actually taking crazy risks. They took stupid risks. They didn't understand liquid, you know, they didn't understand what might happen, um, to liquidity conditions, to, to, you know, to duration mismatches, you know, to short versus long-term rates, et cetera. But they actually weren't, they actually weren't lending it in crazy ways. A lot of the banks in the global financial crisis were lending it in crazy ways, you know, like, like, you know, lending it to making mortgage loans to borrowers who really had no business being able to pay them back. That's, that's, that's a crazy thing with other people's money and a loophole in regulation. This was more just, Again, this should have been caught. Um, someone was asleep at the switch because because they should have already. They, this should have been picked up earlier than it was. Um, but this one, in many cases, this one is actually a strange one because it wasn't. It, it wasn't necessarily on the surface. It wasn't necessarily an undue credit risk. They weren't doing anything cr- truly overtly stupid or risky with the money. They were investing it in very high high credit securities. 
But the problem is they didn't understand they didn't understand some of the other risks that go along in banking, which which are much less subtle than just credit risk. So it all comes down to leadership, right? Like most things, it comes down exactly. to leadership. So glad you mentioned leadership because one of the leaders, a man named by the name of Joseph Gentile, uh, if you don't know who that is, he was the former chief financial officer at Lehman Brothers, Global Investment Bank, which, as we all know, went bankrupt in 2008. So he was he was one of the head guys at SVB. Now, was he really? I didn't know that. Yeah, 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 he was. So how does a guy who screwed up so royally at his last job land this job? You know, that happens a lot in just in banking and corporate America. Regardless, you fail up politics. Like a lot of the people uh, who caused the crash in 08, again, completely different than here, but all those people who, who caused that crash still got their bonuses. They still, they got, they got fucking new jobs. They got, uh, what's the word, um, promoted. So how these people who caused these crashes, again, not saying this guy caused the crash, but how come this is that common thread, poor leadership? These poor leaders don't get any consequences. They don't lose their jobs and they just move around and make the same mistakes all over again. I've, I've always noticed the phenomenon, and I, I was having this conversation, I was out to dinner with some guys I know from the industry a, a few weeks ago, and I, we, we were talking about some people we knew who seemed to fall up, fall upwards. Yeah, it happens a lot. Um, it, happens a lot. it does happen a lot. You know, be, usually they're very presentable. They, you know, they, they're in with the right circles, et cetera, et cetera. There's also a Correct. strange Wall Street, there's also a strange Wall Street phenomenon, mm-hmm. and that is, if, if you just have like ordinary losses, you get fired. If you lose some spectacular amount of money that puts you on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, a lot of times those people come back and people lend them more money, figuring, well, they're good risk takers and they screwed up that one time and they're not going to make that same mistake again. It, it, it's happened. You're shaking your head, but it's happened. I know. That's why I'm shaking my head. <laughs> it so, makes me angry. I don't know. I've never been, as far as I'm concerned, I've, I've had to like work hard to maintain, you know, my, an upward trajectory. I've never been one of the people who figured out the means to fall upwards. There have been people to crack that code. I didn't realize that there was a the Lehman brothers connection here. You would have figured he would have, but, but this was actually but no, a different. That's my point. There were no consequences. Nothing happened to him. How can you learn from something if you don't get punished? If there's well, no the, consequences. You know, that well, that's that's a whole other argument. We don't have enough time for it. I'm starting to lose my voice having talked all day. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, we have to one again, like like I said, like with the insurance, we have to figure out what the right what the right insurance system is. We probably do need to figure out there have to be there has to be checks and balances. We pro, you know, it's pretty clear that um, the consequences to screwing up in this manner tend to be just financial and it's not even clear they're big enough financially. Um, But that's, that's a whole other societal discussion. And and it's another one that we're probably not likely to have anytime soon. A little, little, little too big to talk in a talk with Tarashik podcast, but it's my audience isn't big (laughs) enough to people to care. Um, Okay. So before I let you go, I was talking to some of venture capital, you know, they're looking to get into VC. So I promised them I would ask these questions. Um, how is this going to affect the startup industry? Um, and like, what does it mean? Cause you know, this bank had a lot of venture capital firms, a lot of tech startups. So what happens to tech is, did the bubble just burst? And then what happens to VC who are looking to give out funding to these, to these companies? And I have a follow up question after that, but tech, what happens to tech and VC funding? Okay. Not, not being a venture capitalist or having a, you know, 
dealt in that world, I'm going to have to talk a little abstractly. Um, if they're good, there's always going to be money for good ideas. People always, that's human nature. People want, people want to back the next big thing. And so there will be money that flows. There'll be money that flows to it. And, but I will argue that the money has stopped flowing some time ago. The, 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 the easy, crazy, stupid money kind of petered out 20, you know, around 2021, 2022. Um, that was the whole point of raising interest rates and, and the and quantitative tightening by the Fed. It, not necessarily to squash venture capital, but money was getting deployed in crazy ways. I, the, the whole cryptocurrency industry, I will argue, would, would that have a thought experiment, which we don't have time to solve here, would crypto have been a thing if interest rates were always four or five percent, I'm going to I'm going to argue no. It became a thing when 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 money was essentially free. When money when money gets more expensive and more scarce, there will still be people looking to deploy it because if you have a great idea, if you if you know if you invent something wonderful or you have some methodology of doing business that's going to be incredibly profitable. Well, people are going to want to finance that. And people want to finance that if rates are zero. They'll want to finance if it's 5%. They'll want to do it if it's 10%. Because if the promises are, are that high, what they're not going to do is finance just some wacko idea or, you know, just because it sounds good on paper. Um, and that's a lot of the stuff you saw happening. So um, taking away SVB will make life a little more difficult in the short term, but it's not going to stop. The, the, the process of innovation innovation is going to go on. People are going to fund that innovation. People are going to prof, want to profit from that innovation. So I think it's a hiccup, but 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 more or less, I'm going to call it a speed bump rather than anything else right now. Right. So you think it's still a good time to look to get into the world of venture capital? If you're looking for jobs in VC, it's still a, it's still a hungry market out there? I, I can't speak to that because I don't. I've, ne I've never looked for a job or had a job in venture capital. I, I'm going to say as an industry, it's going to continue to exist. Right. Um, but like any other industry that it, that involves investment and deploying money, um, there's more of it to go around when money is cheap. You know, the the, the people who give the money to the venture capitalists to invest um, are more willing to take risks with it when money when when returns are low, when returns are high. You have to seek out better mean, you know, better types of returns. And so it becomes a little less plentiful. So um, I can't, I don't know anything. I'm not even going to pretend to know the job market in, in VC. I can't answer that part of the question, but, but in, from a 30,000 point, from a 30,000 foot view, it, it, it's here to stay. It's not going anywhere. And, you know, it, especially since they didn't all get wiped out by losing their money um, that was on deposit at SVB, it'll be around to be deployed and invested in something else. Fair enough. Well, I hope that answers your question, friend. Um, Steve, that was an hour. We, we had an hour and five minutes, uh, who's counting? But that went very <laughs> fast. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. But before we go, the final okay. question of the Talk My Tarashik podcast always goes to the guests. So you've known me a little bit now, uh, behind the mic mostly, but now you know me in front of the mic. If there's anything you've ever wanted to ask me about anything in life, money, podcasting, whatever, Ask away. You got one question. Um, well, like I mean, I know you. No, I'm not going to plead the fifth, but I'm going to give you one that that won't that won't embarrass you or get you fired from from your day job. But Please. tell you know, tell me, tell me the tell me the stuff you like about working, like and dislike about your role at Nasdaq, which is how I've gotten to know you. Oh man, that's a tough question to answer. Well, I think my favorite part was without getting yourself in trouble. I, I don't want to get you fired. Oh, let me let me Jill. let me be very clear. I could say I could say anything, and Jill will just be you know Jill Jill number one. 
Uh, the best <laughs> the best part's working with Jill. Honestly, um, having a boss and a a um, a superior who is so easy to get along with, easy to work with, lets me explore ways to grow, lets me explore ways creatively, gives me the runway, and also to just do what I need to do the way I need to do it. Uh, but also, if I, she needs to ring in the leash, you know, I have that respect for her to where I can, you know, remember that she's my boss. And one of the best things I did was I had her on the podcast. You know, Jill is my boss. Yeah, I do know that. She came on on my podcast. You know, I brought her to the studio in Montclair, New Jersey, kind of showing what I have going around because she does know. Also, she lets me explore other things outside of the job. So, like, you know, I'm the founder of Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. I'm technically a contract, so I have a lot more runway to work with. Um, but my podcasting is completely separate from my day job. And I try and kind of tiptoe the line of what I can and can't do and resources I can and can't use. And another good part of working there is that I have no issue with that because I can ask, right? If I, if I, if I had, if I had any issues, I thought of bringing you as a guest on, um, I could just ask and she would tell me no, and I wouldn't do it. You know, it's simple as that. So there's transparency. There is leeway. There's plenty of room to grow, um, whether it's at NASDAQ or outside of NASDAQ. So I like to keep them separate. You know, I like to keep the fact that I work there and Ambiguous Podcast Solutions and my podcasting business and my work in podcasting separate as much as possible um, just so there is no conflict. You know, it can't be conflict if you, don't mm-hmm. if you don't introduce each other. But sometimes they do cross over. You know, this, this bank crash happens and – I need a guest last minute. And I was just like, oh, who can I think of? And bam, Steve popped into my head because you were just on talking with us. And, you know, you're a man I respect very highly. Um, you're on with us frequently. You're excellent behind the mic, so I know you're good at this. I knew you would be able to handle my questions, whether it's some a boneheaded or some whatever. You can handle my pushback because <laughs> I am, you know, I'm a millennial. I'm very cynical. <laughs> I'm not very confident. I'm not confident in the markets. I'm not confident in the government. But okay. um, I think just in our conversation, you kind of pushed some of that confidence back into me. So I really, I really enjoyed it. So thank you. Well, thank you. I, I enjoyed it too. And I enjoyed, I, I'm, I'm glad you think as highly of Jill as I do. You obviously work with her every day. I, I'm fortunate enough to, you know, to talk to her a couple times a month um, or, you know, or more frequently as time allows. And, um, you know, I've always had that impression of her. Um, I'm glad to hear you echo it. So that's, that's, that's wonderful. Excellent. All right, Steve, um, anything you want to share? Um, if you have social media, the company, um, Whatever you want to share, promote, the floor is yours. Well, um, my Twitter is at Steve Sosnick. Um, you know, please follow me. I'm, I'm not the biggest social media presence. I'm, I'm not a millennial, so I'm not a social media native. But I think I, I think I occasionally pepper it with some things that are useful. Um, I write pretty much daily for um, Interactive Brokers. Um, the Traders Insight, we've actually rebranded it as IBKR Campus, which I haven't gotten an updated backdrop. Um, but that really has a lot of educational stuff, not just not just you know the stuff that I write, but we have all kinds of educational stuff about markets. You want to know how to price bonds? There's a bond pricing module. You want to know how, to, how, how options work? There's an options pricing module. So we have a lot of educational content on there. Um, for both new and experienced uh, investors and, and, and people who are interested in the market, and it's all free. Um, and so those are really the two things I'd like to, you know, I, I hope I could get across today. Awesome. Excellent, Steve. Thank you so much again for being a guest on the Talking with Tarashik podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Will Tarashik. That comes to a conclusion of the show. T is in Thomas, A-R-A-S-H. 
UK, all my things. The Talking with Tarashuk, TikTok, at Talk with Tarashuk, Instagram, where all the reels and clips will be shown from this podcast. I'm probably going to get about 15 to 20, so that's going to be exciting. Um, YouTube, Talking with Tarashuk, all the full shows, playlists, and everything. The podcast is available on all audio platforms. It's going to go on the money playlist. This is going to go on the clips playlist and the full shows playlist. Maybe one or two others. I'm not sure yet. We'll see what goes. All the audio and clips are there. If you want to support the show, link in the description down below. I always forget to do this, but I'm going to remember now. The GoFundMe for Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. Yes, talking about assets and debts. Well, I got a little bit of both. So help me <laughs> in wiping my debt clean. If you need a microphone, you can go to our store. Also linked down below to start your own podcast. Any interest in the podcast, want me to host your podcast, reach out to me, will at APSpodcast.com or give us $5 to the GoFundMe and help support the business. Next week, I am talking to a man who's been in podcasting since 2005. He was a guest on the Ambiguous Podcast Solution a year ago. We're going to catch up with Keith Hayes. I'm very excited to talk to Keith. You know, he was supposed to be on tonight, but I got Steve to bump him. So thank God for Keith. Thank you. <laughs> Shout out to you. Steve Sosnick, thanks again one more time. Um, my name is Will Tarashuk. That has been the podcast. We'll see you next time. But until then, y'all take care.